the signature of God, as DK calls it. The more you learn about Capricorn, you know, the more interesting it gets, both the depths of matter and the, the heights of the highest cosmic mind. So everything to do with substance and the control of substance, which is mind, is Capricorn. So everything to do with the Dark Brotherhood, the darkness right now, doing a section on, on the secret doctrine, there's a phrase there called the Dark Hidden Father, which relates to Capricorn, whereas the phrase the White Brilliant Sun relates to Aquarius, which is what we're going to go now, talking about this White Brilliant Sun. And the Dark Hidden Father, as you can see, we use the term Dark Brotherhood. So the term dark can refer to both the Dark Brotherhood as well as absolute God. Now, why do you think this absolute God can be called, or is phrased here, the Dark Hidden Father? The Dark Hidden Father refers to the absolute Logos rather than the Dark Logos. In the case of the darkness fields of boundless all, they're talking about the darkness of Prakriti, or Mula Prakriti, um, filling the boundless all. So it's a different form of dark. Any of you understand, for instance, if you put a candlelight in front of a 100-watt light, that candlelight is dark. Um, you put that candlelight in a black room and it illuminates the room. All is relative. The intensity of the mind of this dark hidden father is so strong that you, relatively speaking, are standing within the very dim light of a candle and you're trying to see via it. And because of the substance of your light is so dim, you cannot see the intensity of the light beyond it. And therefore, to you, it is dark. It is unknown. It is hidden. If your light was washed out compared to his, you would not exist. You can reside in the dark spaces, in the caverns of his mind, so as to speak. See, it's like your monadic light. If the monadic light shone in your brain, you would immediately sort of spontaneously combust. You would mm -hmm. turn into a blazing sun. There are uh, mechanisms to keep us safe from the radiant effulgence of the Great One. That's right. And they're, they're keeping it safe. It's just something like if you, I think, up Plato's Republic or something like that, there were the okay. people that lived, lived all their, yeah, forever on their lives in the cave and I've only ever seen the shadows on the wall and they've got the, all of the information of, from those shadows as to what the world view is. Mm. And if you ever go into that, the light uh, behind the shadows, um, of course, you would be blinded by it if the light's so intense. Anyway, the dark hidden father, it's dark because it's incomprehensible to your minds. That's the normal way of interpreting it. You're, you just cannot cognize what the mind of, of this Logos is and how it manifests. And therefore, it's dark and it's hidden. It's veiled behind a layer after layer after layer of substance, the sheaths of substance of which you have incarnated. And let us, let us all of you to understand, you or us in our forms, we exist in what to a Logos is not a principle. To a Logos is doesn't exist. It's the gross physical plane, what we think with, is the substance upon which our planetary logos walks upon, dense mineral. It's not something to be appropriated. So you're looking from within what you might call the consciousness of a rock, trying to understand what a sun is. That's the true comparison of this. And so the consciousness of the rock cannot comprehend what is beyond its own state, the, the sieves of substance 
that, and of course the process of gaining enlightenment is to cleanse those sieves of substance. Those sieves of substance, therefore, is maya and samsara, and doesn't exist. All that exists is shunyata. And now the shunyata is dark, it's hidden. You know, it cannot be comprehended by means of the mind. And the shunyata itself is still but a veil of the mind of a lotus, of cosmic mind. So dark, hidden, further. The other way of looking at it, the most esoteric way, which is the hardest way for any of you to properly cognize, and this gets into the heart of the, the symbol of the signature of Makara, is the fact that the further you go into abstract space, the further you're going to the mind of God. Let's look at, say, a planetary logos uh, versus a solar logos versus the logos of a constellation versus the logos of, of the, the, the whole series of constellations in the night sky, which is the body of that logos, which is but one human unit within a greater logos, which is the logos of, a, of, of the galaxy, and that is just one human unit within the, uh, a far greater logos, which is a, a galactic cluster, which is but one human unit within a greater logos which is the sum of the galactic clusters which we may call the logos of of a universe and the logos of the universe is but one your logos one entity one human unit within a companion of brothers and sisters traveling in inevitable space uh, so you can begin to understand the vastness of all of this relatedness. And now what I'm trying to get to is if you understand the evolution of the races, we're now in the fifth root race, which is called the Aryan. And by the time you get to the body of that Logos, which is the lord of the constellations, then you're up to the level of Atlantean civilization. That's where they are at. And by the time you get to the Logos of, of a galaxy, you're up to the level of Lemurian civilization. You're going back in time and denser and denser consciousness, darker and darker consciousness. So by the time you get to the Logos, the mind of the Logos who embodies our universe, you've got dark mind, black space. Dark Brotherhood. Um, there's a tourism in saying that uh, uh, the dark hidden part is Dark Brotherhood. In terms of the, the point of evolution, it is mind, but it's such a primitive mind, yet that is the all-knowing God, it appears. Um, and also the rate of evolution is exceedingly slow compared to yours because it's got to wait for all of those lives to gain their one step forward in evolution before it can. The other way of looking at the concept of God, which is in terms of energy, see, if you get a, say, a, a kettle, and now that kettle, you can boil it with energy, right? And, there, and so it's boiling water is very hot. But you get that kettle and you put it on the table and it cools down. What has really happened is that heat that was in that kettle, which was very intense, in other words, the heat of a, a small unit is concentrated and is very intense. But when it gets absorbed into a larger space, it becomes cooler. The same heat has been absorbed by the larger space. So as you get into larger and larger volumes of space, the quality of the energy is less, right? But the intensity of the energy is greater. See, it's the weight of the energy. So the sum total of the energy of the whole room is far greater than the energy that's boiling away in that, that kettle. Yet, that kettle, if you touch it, is super hot, whereas you can live quite happily in that room. But the total weight of the energy in that room is far greater. And so when you get 
to uh, further, in fact, in, in space, the energy becomes diffused, and so therefore you get lower and lower temperatures. But the sum of the weight of the energy is far greater. And that's the reason why it can burn you, even though it's relatively cooler. Anyway, uh, so when you contact it, you, know, you have this enormous force in your mind when you contact a great being. And so you actually have to withstand quite intense energies as you gain your enlightenment, even though when you're contacting something like what people call God, relatively speaking, it's a, a further back, a backward level of evolution, so Atlantean or Lemurian. So anyway, it's a, a quandary, but you can see this whole concept of when you're seeking God, you're going back further in time. Then you have to apply as above, so below. You represent the future for such an entity. It's amazing to think, is it not? And so you can see that this whole concept of relativity, everything, ignorance, uh, and this is the, the wheel of uh, dependent origination of Buddhism. Everything is dependent upon everything else, and the whole stem of that is ignorance. And I actually make a note in my books, everything is, you know, even a Buddha is ignorant relative to something else. There's no end to ignorance. And so every entity, including a, a god of a cosmos, incarnates in order to learn something more, overcome the sphere of ignorance, the relative sphere of ignorance that entity is living in. And of course you can see there's no concept, there's no such thing as beginning and ending, because the whole universe, as St. Paul puts it, groaneth and travaileth and pain together. We are all evolving together. Every entity, even the smallest atom in your, in your bodies, is evolving with you, and it goes through its cycles quite fast compared to you. But as you evolve, the greater entity evolves eventually, and the greatest entity evolves eventually. But as the greater entity takes another step, it eventually goes into trailer, and then starts another incarnation. And the whole thing starts again. Every entity within the body, the manifestation of that greater being, then has to take one step forward. You can see there's no beginning and ending. It's just repetition of cycle after cycle until eventually dark space ignorance is overcome. And so uh, the dark hidden father is also dark because the father himself is ignorant of something, lives in uh, the space of dark mind. But ultimately, as Yogacarya say, all is mind. Everything comes from mind, exists in mind, and uh, abstracts back again into mind. And this mind is the mind of this dark hidden fighter, and that is all symbolized by Capricorn and the process of evolution um, of this whole, well, I've just described, is this um, symbol that I've given you last week to do with the sign Capricorn, the signature of God. It's all hidden there. You can see um, something to do with astrology. It, it's quite vast. There's actually um, two juxtapositions there. One is Capricorn, which is the mind, uh, or that which wields the mind. And then there's the substance that must be converted, which is the, the principle of ignorance, which is Virgo. And um, that which interrelates the two is Gemini. And then Gemini holds the sun principle, which is the sign of Aquarius. Aquarius is the consciousness arising out of it all. There's a reason why Aquarius follows Capricorn. 
Now, when you look at the symbol of Aquarius, you get two wavy lines. So the wavy lines are drawn in a horizontal fashion. You can see when you're looking at Aquarius, what they what is telling you immediately is that all is energy. All is a sea of energy. Uh, another way of looking in the in the secret doctrine, we use the term akasha um, for this energy. A sea of fire is what it really translates as, and that fire is the mind of God or the expression of the mind of God in Aquarius. Or what you're really looking at is the waters or the, the akasha that is directed via the cosmic astral plane. Most of you, like the symbol for, for the cosmic astral is water, but that water is fiery. It's akasha. Uh, the astral itself is fiery. Decay in, in the cosmic fire um, mm -hmm. characterizes it by heat. Cosmic astral? No. The systemic astral also. Um, see, the only thing that is really watery is human emotion. That particular water, if you're looking at it from, from a, the point of view of a physicist, is, is energy. It's just a state of energy. It's just the level of energy. And it's fluid. And it's we can say alcohol is watery. Oil is watery. Right? It's fluidity. So the term water really means fluidity. It's beautiful. It's in motion. Everything is beautiful. Everything lives in relationship to everything else. Uh, everything comes. So this uh, sign of Aquarius depicts the mutability of two different streams of energy. Now, I'll go back to the astral plane. It's quite important for all of you to understand the astral plane better than some of you do, that the astral plane is the great illusion. There's no astral plane per se for the Diva Kingdom. There's no astral plane for the Animal Kingdom per se. Only for humans is there such a thing as what we call the astral plane. But we have created it out of our desire minds. It is a, a condensation of desire with mind, of, of mind. The astral plane is a, it's a relationship of human desire with human mind. It's created by the two, and it condenses the waters. Um, in the cat's case, there is just simply a form of instinctual intelligence, which uh, instinctual intelligence, which has a relationship with solar plexus center in line with the energy of the group consciousness of the cat kingdom. The cat will see her as another form of cat, of which one part, of, namely her mind, is incomprehensible. It is not understood, not to be reckoned with. But there's P, her clairvoyant communication overtures to the cat, that they recognize because it's a clairvoyance. But it's not a watery clairvoyance. It's cold fire. I don't know if you understand cold fire. It's, it's another concept. Now, that is correct. The, the, these animals that have very close interrelationship with human, with the human kingdom, such as dogs, cats, some um, horses, uh, whatever. Now, these these animals are starting to develop human traits, and the more they develop the human traits, the more it indicates that they are ready for individualization. 
in a certain stage, the development of this human trait, whether it's mind or the emotions, will produce nirvana for them. There's no need. They don't need to enter into that kingdom again. And they wait for others to reach where they're at so that they can individualize in the latest cycle. What I'm trying to get to with regards to the astral plane is that if you divorce it from human conceptology, the human imagination, right? Now, the dogs and the animals we're talking about don't have this imagination. It's the human imagination, the, the desire coupled with mind that produces the astral plane. And therefore, the beings that die and enter into the astral plane, they live in the creative pool of energies created by human imagination. The astral plane itself, when it is freed from human imagination, and understand that as you gain your enlightenment, you eliminate this imaginative process. You eliminate attachments to things, attachments to form. You disattach, disassociate, and you align yourself with the principle of enlightenment, the principle of light, cool, clear reason. The imagination goes... And what is left is creative impetus of the mind, pure mind with love. So what the astral plane is, for the demons, for instance, is this mind. It's an energy field that is manipulated or uh, utilized by inherent intelligence. Each diva, and those of you that have spoken to divas, seen that work with the divas, know that they're units of mind. They're like little children, but they don't have the emotions. The emotions is created by humans. It's a human attribute. Dogs themselves, for instance, they're the most emotional of all the animals. They're the ones that are evolving human attributes. And they're doing that through being interrelated with humans. That's their way of achieving nirvana. For cats, they go not so much through the emotions, they go through the mind. Their way of achieving nirvana is development of the intellectual faculty. For horses, well, I think it's a fusion of the two. Okay, so you can see, I've mentioned before, there are seven, uh, seven animals that have specific related, related to humans that are developing individualization along the seven ray lines. Dogs, cats, elephants, monkeys... Anyway, goats, uh, the, the quadrupeds. We won't go to There's another one that, that trained by humans, you know, the first. Well, monkeys had a seventh ray line. Yeah. And you see the monkeys uh, that, that are, fortunately, with basic esotericism, there's, there's, no, there's no argument. We won't go any further into this subject. We'll go more back into. Now, with Aquarius, we've got the seven two wavy bands. We went into the whole subject of the waters and the condensation of the waters. And that is a human function. Now, there is a process also that Logar condense waters. For instance, as you've mentioned, there's the waters on this earth. Uh, so there is a process of watery precipitation, but it comes from fire. It is really just a way of looking at the quality of energy that is fluidity. So whatever is fluid is watery. So, but I can ask, symbolically speaking then, with the two wavy lines, does the top one rep, um, represent something different to the bottom one? Like is one a water and one is a fire line or...? 
Aquarius itself is an airy sign. So normally it relates to the airy element. The top normally is represented what is called the anima, anima mundi, the world soul, right? And then the bottom uh, relates to the energies of the form. It's like the spirit of God over the, the face of the waters, right? So the bottom is the face of the waters and the top is the spirit of God. So you've got the, the two different types of energies. One that relates to form, um, to the mother, and then the other that relates to the masculine principle, if you wish, or the, the, that, which is to incarnate into it. Masculine is the top one. Okay. Or the airy principle is the top one. And then the bottom one, if you want, is the, the more watery or the feminine. Now, wouldn't it be like the bottom one's the watery one and the top one's the fiery one and the air is the space between? Yes, you can also look at that from, from that particular symbol. But uh, whenever you're looking at the symbol, what you actually have to understand is there's an inherent triplicity. The space in between is the inherent triplicity. In my book, uh, I Concept, I go into the Aquarian, this particular sign, and I make the space in between shunyata. The void. It is the, the mechanism of transmission of one or to the other, but is empty of both. And with this particular case, then the bottom line is samsara, the bottom wavy line is samsara, the upper wavy line is dharmakaya, and the central space in between that doesn't contain anything is shunyata, is the void. What we've been describing so far is two wavy lines and a horizontal. And this horizontal is the mother, it's the feminine principle. In other words, the, the beginning process of evolution. Now, if you actually look at the sign of Aquarius, what, what the way it's described is a man or a diva bearing a pitcher of water and pouring the waters down. That's the masculine principle. So you have a vertical wavy lines as um, paired to horizontal wavy lines. Now, the horizontal wavy lines, therefore, represent the planes of perception. And if you look at um, the picture of the atom of Babbitt's book, then you've got uh, three groups of seven spirals. These are the planes of perception, and that's the horizontal wavy lines. The vertical wavy lines is the descent of spirit, the rays of light. They come down and interrelate with the spheres of substance to produce the interrelationship produces the spiral cyclic motion and then it produces the entire picture of the atom. So you get the, the rays of light coming down, which is what Aquarius pours, and the feminine principle, which is inherently dual, as uh, the wavy lines that are horizontal. There, in a sense, you get the symbol of Aquarius. Now, the concept of Aquarius is what I, I generally use it as the, the body sattva. It is the, the container of the principle of love, which comes from the cosmic astral, poured into manifest space. And it is that which vitalizes, provides consciousness to the what is the receptive form, the vehicle of the energies coming down. So it's that which nourishes, that which feeds the little ones, that which impregnates with life. So if we go back to Capricorn, Capricorn establishes the planet.
planes of perception, Aquarius um, vitalizes those planes of perception with living light. It pours it in. Okay, so free-flowing, mutable, ability of the mind, uh, the mutability of, of expression of love. Um, as you can see, love is not bounded. It's not contained by a form. And the same is with, with the symbol of Aquarius. It is not bounded. Um, those lines can literally go on forever in any direction in space. And there can be many levels of these lines. And collectively, the lines are seen as the waters. And as I said, it's the sea or the ocean of fire. The waters are inherently of mind. I know there's a lot of difficult philosophical concepts there. I love to ponder more this idea that the astral is essentially fire because that certainly I, I'm, that certainly flies in the face just of the standard esoterism and that always astral equals watery. I mean, that's really interesting. I'm very open to it. The astral actually is watery, of course. The element water rules the astral, but that's only because of the human condition. As I said, you remove the human condition and the astral does not exist. There's a section in the book of Revelation and it says, and there shall be no more sea. What is left? It's consumed by the mental plane. As a matter of fact, when you look at the symbol for the form, it is a six-pointed star, the seal of Solomon. Um, what is excluded there is the astral. And the astral, therefore, is the illusionality of the mayor that the fishes, which are each one of you, swimming. Eventually, the fish breaks the bond to the waters and escapes up the antikrana to the uh, higher self. Your true self, as each of you, is a soul, is that flower that exists on the domain of the mind. The reality of what you really are is your minds, and it's linked to the heart, which is the life principle for the monad, and the rest of it you create. And what do you create is your volatile, emotional interrelationship with each other and the things of the phenomena. This volatile, emotional interrelationship causes you to attach yourself, to identify yourself with everything around you that is transient. Mm. And that includes human interrelationships. There are interrelationships between your forms. One form is masculine. Uh, you identify with that. Another form is feminine but it's all illusional. You know that form that is masculine in one life, it's feminine in an earlier life, and so forth. So everything is defined by the mind. You, when you remove this concept of desire, this concept of attachment to that which is volatile around you, then what is left is the mind, the fires of the mind, and there you have the astral plane. I always see it as a body of energization. Uh, it's an energy field that is watery because human emotions have made it so. But for the divas, it is pure unit of intelligence. They build, they create with it. They embody that substance also, there's watery divas as a consequence. But they are not emotion. They just simply embody the quality of the substance. Could we, could we say that the astral is a manifestation of the emotion, of the human emotions? Yes, yes, the astral is the manifestation of human emotions. But when you eliminate the human emotions, the astral still exists. But it's a, it's a body of energy that causes the appearance of phenomena. Yeah. So it encompasses it's, as well the, the, the animal kingdom. 
yes, human beings. That's yeah. right. It's an externalization energy. It's an energy that causes the appearance of things. But that you're, that means you're saying you can't create without a level of astral energy. Yes, you need the astral energy to create with. But how you create, you can create purely with the mind, you can create with your mental emotions, or you can, well, that, that's, those are the two ways. Could we say we have instinctive emotions? Well, yeah, the instinct and the emotions, but the instinctual emotions, what is that? It's, but it is, it is a reaction which is not um, mentally reasoned. If a reaction is not mentally resolved or not mentally manifested, then there's no astral plane. The astral plane is not formed. Yeah, that's what I'm sort of saying. The instinctual emotions is uh, there's no astral plane for human beings that are purely physical, that are pure sex-driven, violence-driven entities that don't have a mind, that don't go into an astral plane, that don't have a silver cord. When they die, uh, they quickly reborn again. It's only the people that have developed the emotions that that produce the clinginess to forms uh, with their minds so to, that have created the watery environment in which people reside. And that watery environment is selfish. It's a self-tainted images. That's another concept for all of you to think about. You know, we talk about planes... Right, you know, as if they're places, mm. and I want to, you know, and as you're talking, I'm trying to actually really tap into what we call this astral plane is, right? But when, for example, you know, we can all identify times when we're more astral or less astral, we don't go somewhere, right? It's more, I see, isn't it more this actually, this entity almost that moves through us and that we then add to or maybe diminish or, you know what I mean, that it's like if you think of it more like a zeitgeist in an energy form or a, that moves through us and like rather than this idea, you know, where you say the animals have no astral plane, I don't get how they could have no astral plane. I mean, what you're saying is they're not impacted by astral energy, right? They don't have the creative imagination. Look, whenever you dream, whenever you yes, uh, go through go a mental, emotional hallucination about things, like a lot of people, for instance, um, let us just go to this field of sex. Um, they, they hallucinate on their ideal sexual partner. Yes, they right. want such and such. They build this up in their minds. Mm. As they do this, they're creating an astral utopia. Uh, when they die, they can live out that astral utopia as if it, because that they have created. If you go to the astral plane, there also you'll see people's cats and dogs. There is an interrelationship, as I said, between the human and the animal kingdom, that those that are close to you. And anything that human beings have created with their minds are there. Now, 
you can think over the, the aeons of time or, you know, since um, Atlantean times, early Atlantean times, humans have been creating the astral plane. And what have they created it that with? They've created with their sexual desires. They've created with the images okay. of uh, lots and lots of wealth, opulence. Now, on the astral plane, in Atlantean times, the humans created enormous palaces of opulence because they're full of desire. And they lived in these palaces of opulence, these astral palaces of opulence, with every imaginable, pleasurable thing in it, much more than they lived in their physical bodies. I still, that's further explained this construct, this other world like that you read about in World Unseen and then these other things, which, you know, all seems completely believable and makes a lot of logical sense. But to me that sends something different to what we're calling it when we're creating and producing astral substance, as we were talking about earlier, in incarnate form. We don't go up to palaces of opulence when someone throws some yucky astral energy on you. That's, that's like manifest and imminent and it's substance here and now. You also have your own solar plexus substance. Yeah. Uh, and that deals with a certain amount of watery energy, a certain quality of energy which we define as watery. And this yucky substance you're creating all the time through your emotional interrelationship. And then that adds to this so-called astral plane. It, it That's correct. But it's unique to you, this particular substance that you're creating now. Mm -hmm. So when you die, when people die, they... Their negativities, their fears, their phobias, their selfishness descends upon them and they must live through that. And then that collective selfishness, which is similar to what other people that are selfish have created, becomes a murky sphere, right? It's the quality of the energy is murky. It's dull grey, brown, black, watery, like a sewer, because that's what they've created. So... This is what we call samsara. And as you become a disciple, and as you work upon yourself to cleanse, to control your solar plexus, which is what it's all about really, by means of your mind, so you're using the fires of the mind, technically to, bore, to burn away the watery substance, to control the watery substance until it's evaporated. And you're infusing into all of that the light of, the heart, so everything becomes illumined with light, with radiant light. The fires of the mind and uh, the radiance of the heart. So the foreign enlightened being is no such thing as an astral substance. That's a field of service work, sure, if they want to go into the astral plane to help human units there. But for them, there's no astral plane. As you become enlightened, for you, there's no astral plane. There's no astral body as such. You don't go into the astral body when you leave your, your body at night, when you go to sleep. You go straight into the domain of the soul or higher. And when the soul is gone, you don't even go to the domain of the soul. You're going into the void. Uh, you're going to Dharmakaya. Nice. You understand that this whole process is one of detachment, of cleansing yourself from this quality we call astral. Uh, what people call human, right? Now, this astral plane 
has its function. This quality has its function. Um, in my Buddhist books, call it Kristamanas, right? You've heard of Kristamanas, mm-hmm. right? It's defiled mind. That's mm-hmm. the way they use it. And Kristamanas, its purpose is the evocation of bodhicitta, the enlightened mind. Kristamanas is the genesis of bodhicitta, of the compassionate mind. So it has its function. It's that which makes you compassionate. As you learn to disassociate yourself with attachments to phenomena, your watery attachments to phenomena, you know it produces one thing or two things, pleasure and pain, pleasure and pain, happiness and sadness. You've seen the cycles. You've seen it within yourselves. You've seen it all around you. You're always trying to help people that are depressed, miserable, unhappy. And at the same time, they... Yeah, they're trying to elevate themselves to be happy. But both pleasure and pain, of sadness and happiness, are astral. And what you're trying to develop is to eliminate both of those concepts and live in the pure, blissful state of not having an astral body. Maybe there should be more emphasis in our meditation life on equanimity, whereas... There's yeah, a lot more emphasis on if feeling pain, kind of rapidly do something about it. And, like, I don't know. I, I've i been kind of meditating Well, what you're trying to do with, with regards to this feeling of pain is to analyse it. See, yeah. It's the fires of the mind that must dissipate the waters. Yeah. And when it dissipates the waters, what is left is a sea of fire, a kasha. So, so we get back to, to this, this cosmic astral plane substance. So you can see equanimity, yes, desirelessness, you can see all of these Buddhist teachings coming into this particular field, yes? Well, but also, like pain, just like in the body, where pain has a profoundly communicative value, emotional pain can also desire for equanimity, which I think we need to emphasize more in our practice. But then on another level, like pain mental emotional pain can really alert to you to wait something's not right that's what its function is to teach you wisdom of what not to do of what not to be attached to and so forth right but also potentially something that needs to change well i guess same what you're saying yeah we are transformer of energies yeah constantly so you can't you can either be you can't while saying that pain is bad, you also can't be averse, have an aversion to pain either. But it all has its rightful function, mm. but ultimately the whole reason for this pain, suffering, uh, attachment, disattachment, this whole reason for the creating of the watery universe, which we call the astral plane, etc., of you as humans, is that you're going to become, you're evolving to become logi. You're evolving to become stars. That's what it's yeah. all about. Yeah, it is true, <laughs> but not now. The end in mind, the end in mind, I have, <laughs> but the process is not that easy. But we are, if we imagine rules that we are a, a complete being from the the infinitesimal little cells which governs your uh, your skin, for example, until the brightest thing, uh, thought you might have in your highest uh, moment of spiritual involvement. So all this exists in your being 
and you can play like a piano or violin you can play all notes of uh, what is disponible to you so the level of pain manifested is exist we cannot deny it where we can overcome it and we can surpass it mm -hmm. so the pain is the manifestation of something which is not right in whatever level pain is if it is emotional or physical or psychological and it means that we have to reflect upon this pain and see the transformation how can we transform it mm -hmm. into the the equal value of our soul richness Mm. Okay. So okay. we pass through constantly through these uh, experiences of uh, pain into joy, uh, suffering into into happiness. Um, that, and so eventually, mm. you'd say neither suffering, neither suffering, mm. no happiness is important. Mm. But what you want is the void in between. So you know, Aquarius can be sort of the, the top wavy line can be happiness, the bottom wavy line can be suffering, mm -hmm. and what you're trying to get is the void in between, that which is neither one or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing I just want to bring out, which is quite important, mm -hmm. and we're going back to Capricorn, yeah. is that the Dark Brotherhood also must vanquish attachment to the watery mm -hmm. form, right? It's for them, it's the same as for the White Brother. They must also starve out the waters if they want to do their form of magic. So for them, they go the way of mind. Mind per se, uh, without, without the principle of love. Therefore, they go backwards in time. Um, whereas we, because of our reaction to, to suffering and pain, realize that we cannot evolve except by overcoming suffering of pain of all of those around because you realize that your suffering is not just your suffering, it's somebody else's suffering. It's your interconnectedness that causes it all. And therefore, for you to be happy, you must make others around you happy. And the communal joy uplifts you all, the communal service. And this is the way of the development of, of the principle of love, the awakening of bodhicitta, mind with compassion. Shouldn't we emphasize on helping to cultivate serenity in one another? Because in one sense, it, to cultivate happiness in each other then creates as much attachment to another person's happiness. Whereas well, of course. Just identified, of course. Sorry, it's probably just pedantic. But I, I think that is actually quite a big trap in group living because you're really trying to be loving and then you you can too strongly, you know, and, and I think sometimes that's just well, that, very that's reasonable. that's what we call loving mind. Right? I know, and sometimes I think it's very reasonable to simply look at happiness as, as a very relative um, thing to seek to give someone, but that we always must think, how, does, how do I help bring serenity about in myself and others? Because the happiness happens sure, trap. Yes, mm. yes. That, that, that's the detail. That's the detail of the path. Mm. Of course, as you all know, as enlightened beings, you have to understand the teaching value of suffering, and people mm. must suffer in order to learn. Mm. Now, we actually have to let people suffer. So, something. So they can learn. It's like um, the child must learn to touch the candle flame mm -hmm. in order to know that something is hot. 
that, that so you understand this is just the, the fine tuning of the whole teaching and serenity is the, the consciousness of an enlightened being mm. but I do want you all to understand Capricorn and the, the black mind as well as the lighted substance of mind the, the relationship between the two mm. you can go backwards up the spiral or you can go and develop the unicorn's horn I wanted to attract the attention to a, a, a very very specific mechanism of, uh, in our thinking process which might help you to understand the work of DB in some level is every thought we have every concept every um, uh, whatever subject of thinking we start but we never achieve it is something you have sent out in the in the air, we could to, to say that. And this quantum of energy, unfinished thinking, is can be used. It can be used positively by people who, who have not reached the way you have thought, but it can be used also by DB. I mean, you are giving food. If, some, for example, a, a thought which is not terribly constructive is crossing your mind, but at the same time, well, it has crossed your mind and you, you think about something else. This quantum of energy you have emitted and it is sent out. So this quantum will be picked up by someone or something, and DB activity, will be used, added to their own uh, looking for energies and they recycle this in their way. So it is important to understand that the power of our thought, the power of our thinking process, and to be more attentive to this aspect. Because I think, because you live in community and with a lot of different people, it means constantly people are thinking about each other, oh, why she said this to me, or da 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 So we have a quantum of energy left around and this, it is not the purity of your beings you are attacking. They are helping themselves through what you have left around in this material, yeah, thinking okay. material. Okay, just basically this, the, the occult adage, which is like attracts like. And the dark brotherhood attracted to you because of the types of energies and thoughts you have around you. And then I use to capitalize that. And then you feed the environment with those energies and thoughts, therefore always think positively. Um, with, with negative, think positive and so forth. Uh, so you can see this, this subject of Aquarius is such a, a, a fine sign to contemplate on, the pole opposite of Leo. The line. Aquarius, therefore, is universal consciousness or group consciousness, and Leo is a self-centered consciousness, a self-focused consciousness. And so Aquarius um, frees you the containment of thinking in terms of yourself, the, the one in the center of their little universe. And exoterically, of course, it makes also the Aquarian quite superficial. Everything is out there in, you know, wishy-washy, superficial, airy is um, quality. Okay, so that gives you a decent understanding of the, just the glyph of the sign. You can see from the symbols that are given, much can work out to do with the actual zodiacal sign. Exoterically, esoterically, and then later on you'll learn to think hierarchically. The last sign of the zodiac is Pisces. 
Aquarius is air, uh, it um, channels cosmic waters. Um, Pisces is the water sign. And so you have to think in terms of these four elements.